scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And at the risk of accusing me of leading you in calisthenics this morning, I would ask that you would stand once again for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, as we continue a new section in our series through the Gospel of Matthew, where we look at the power of the king. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So reads the words of the living God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would remove the distractions that so easily creep into our minds during a time like this when the word of God is being proclaimed. Would you give us good soiled hearts? Not stony heart, not busy hearts, not idolatrous hearts, but hearts that are like really good topsoil that the word of God can go in and then bring forth abiding fruit. Lord, I believe this message is so practical. This text is so applicable on so many levels. So Father, would you open the eyes of our understanding, show us the glory of Christ in this text, and what that means for me as the waves crash over me in my life. We all ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. In the 1500s, Thomas Cramner, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, was used pretty big time by the Lord to bring reformation to the church in England. He both preached and wrote quite a bit about the authority of Scripture alone as opposed to the authority of the Pope. He preached and wrote a great deal about justification by faith alone as opposed to faith plus works. He encouraged that the everyday man and woman get the Bible not in the Latin Vulgate, which most people couldn't read Latin, but in the common English vernacular. And he also wrote the prayer that we read this morning, one that's still found in the Book of Common Prayer. This man was massively used in bringing reformation to the Church of England. 
But when Mary came into power, Mary the first, she came to be known as Bloody Mary for reasons that will be obvious in just a moment. She rolled back the Protestant Reformation in England in that season, and she reinstated the authority of the Pope. And one of the first things she did was she threw Thomas Cramner in prison along with the fellow Protestant reformers, his friends, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. What's worse is he had Latimer and Ridley burned alive, Mary did, burned alive at the stake and forced Cramner to watch his friends burn to their death. Now, under that kind of pressure, and that is a lot of pressure, right? Cramner ends up renouncing his Protestant faith. That is, salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to God's word alone, for the glory of God alone. By the way, we're going to do a series on the five solas come this October. And what is even more, he resubmitted himself to the authority of the Pope. Cramner did. This was about late January, early February 1556. Well, he was ordered March 21st of that same year, so about six to eight weeks after he recanted, to publicly expound upon and explain his recantation at the University of Oxford Church uh, on a very, very packed day. Well, to the surprise of everybody in that packed church space, you know what Cramner did? He ends up repenting of his recantation. He renounces his recantation. And he knows that he will soon meet his earthly demise, as he will within an hour. He says, and this traitorous hand that signed this evil renunciation will be the first to burn. Chaos ensued. They literally drag him to Smithfield Commons, which is where they would burn Christians at the stake. And just like he said, true to his word, as he was plunged into flames, he put his hand down into it and it started to burn away. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, just like Stephen did. Now, it's a powerful story, isn't it? It's a compelling story. And I tell that story because I believe it illustrates the big idea and the title of today's message is this. Faithful Christians may falter, you probably will at some point. Faithful Christians may falter, but in the end, they will truly follow. Let me say that again. Faithful Christians may falter, but in the end, they will truly follow. Y'all with me? So to mark our walk through this text, there's kind of three, three ideas. The first one is this. You've heard the expression, oh, that person, they can uh, talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Number one, I want us to see that true Christians not only can talk the talk, they can know the right theological answer, what the gospel is. They, in the end, walk it out. They talk the talk, and they walk the walk. I want, to, I want you to see, just, just as we begin to dive into this text, how the two events or the two stories I just read are connected. Story one, the cost of following Jesus. Event number two, the uh, storm that Jesus with a word calms. 
Drop your eyes down at the second part. Let me just read the entire uh, verse 18, but I'm really highlighting the second part of that sentence. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, what does it say? He gave orders to go over to the other side. You might want to underline, he gave orders to go to the other side. That's the opening sentence for event one. Now, look at the opening sentence for, ver- for event two, verse 23. Again, the second half of this sentence as well. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. You see that? You might want to underline, his disciples followed him. So we see verse 18, he gave orders to go to the other side, right? Then we see verse 22, his disciples followed him. Now, what happens in between? Well, you have one guy, a scribe, who says in verse 19, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And it seems he actually does not, right? And then you have this, the second guy, and again, we'll go into this in more detail, verse 22, who says, I, I, I'm really in, Lord, but I just got a few things I got to do first. So you have that, those two things sandwiched between verse 18 and verse 23. The disciples actually follow some of these guys, right? But others do not. And again, I don't think... Um, that these two stories are juxtaposed by some kind of accident. The point that is being made, and this is the first point I'm making, is this. True followers, they not only talk the talk, they walk the walk. See, a lot of people, y'all with me? A lot of people can say the right thing, can't they? but they do not actually really follow Jesus. And we've created an entire theology to justify that. Maybe some of you have been exposed to it. There's there's a famous Christian who recently died, and there's no doubt he taught many great things, but he also embraced this as well. And it basically says, listen, you can receive Jesus Christ as Savior and be saved from the penalty of sin, hell. And then, you know, if you want, go to the optional second level and make a decision to receive him as Lord. You ever heard that? Like, it's kind of like you can get in on tier one, which says you're just a believer, but if you really want to be special, you can get in on tier two and become an actual disciple or follower. But that's optional, and you might not do that. You ever been exposed to this teaching? Yes, you have. I guarantee you have. It's prevalent Western Christianity. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. One is the word believer and disciple and follower, they're all interchangeable. The Bible decidedly does not teach two-level Christianity. And yet there's a lot of people, this brass tacks, shoe leather stuff, who think because, well, they, they prayed a prayer They whispered a prayer, even a biblically sound prayer of receiving Jesus. And maybe even they got baptized, you know, who think they're good with God, even though they actually don't follow him. And I say to you, this this kind of teaching has infected not just American Christianity, I think Western Christianity, to be honest with you. I mean, you've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps. He was a pastor and theologian in Germany during the Second World War. He ended up being killed by the Nazis 
for, not, for resisting those atrocious, horrific Third Reich policies. And he's got this famous quote, maybe you, you, you've come across it, a quote on what kind of grace? Cheap grace, cheap grace. And I think he was trying to explain, by the way, a lot of things with this quote, but one of the things I think he was trying to explain is why is it that so many confessing Christian pastors and just confessing, confessing Christian congregants, Christians themselves, went along and imbibed this horrific Nazi ideology thinking they could do so while still following Christ? And I wonder if the same consumption of false grace explains through every ear, including today, why people can claim the name of Christ and still embrace such anti-God ideologies as people do. Now here's the quote. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace, he goes on to say, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And I just, I just, it's true, lots of people have drank of this false or cheap or fake grace. People who, they, they, they can say the right thing about the gospel, but they don't walk in, as he says here, repentance. Church discipline could never possibly be a thing for them because they've actually never committed themselves to a church. There's no discipleship. There's no confession of sin. There's no, there's no really relishing in the cross and taking up your own cross. There's no following actively right here and now the living incarnate Christ. It's a strong quote. I think it's a good one by Bonhoeffer. You? Now, James Montgomery Boyce, who reminded me of this quote in his commentary, went on to say in that same commentary, quote, in the absence of solid teaching, the teaching of the truth that Jesus is, is, is Savior and Lord, you can't like cut him in half, you know? Millions drift on assuming that because they made some verbal acknowledgement of Jesus 10, 20 even 30 years ago, they're Christians, when actually they may be far from Christ. They may be devoid of grace, and they may be in danger of perishing together forever. He says, Jesus never permitted anyone to harbor such a damaging delusion. He challenged prospective followers to count the cost before deciding to join him. Now that really sets us up to go deeper in this text. Jesus warned people about having false confessions of faith, right? Matthew chapter seven, we hit that a few weeks ago. Remember what he says? Beware of the broad way where people can say the right thing, Lord, Lord, even be on the spiritual path of sorts, but are actually not truly following Christ and on the pathway to destruction. Now here, he makes it very personal. In love, because he's doing everything he does in love, he's going to check down two people who, at this point, are deluded and thinking they actually follow him when it doesn't seem they really do. Who's the first guy that he checks down in our text? We'll look at this a little bit more closely now. The first guy he checks down is, is a scribe. You know anything about scribes? 
scribes were just that. They would scribe or they would, they would copy the Old Testament and, and other sacred writings uh, that, would, that would flow out of that. Who knew the Bible really well back then? Well, a scribe, I mean, if you copied the Bible all day, you would learn something about the Scripture, right? So they were really well-informed scripturally. And what's more is they were highly respected. I don't know that you would be very respected today if you went around telling people, you know what I do for a living? I copy the Bible. I'm like, oh, no, that book? But back then, it was very respected. It'd be like a, a doctor today, perhaps, which prompted one or two commentators to call the scribe Mr. Big Head because he knows a lot of Bible and maybe has an inflated estimation of himself. Mr. Big Head, verse 19, comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is you have the whole Bible and you can compare Scripture with Scripture, right? That's what we're called to do. And the Holy Spirit is giving us a little tip that this man is not nearly as all in for Jesus as he proclaims himself to be. Now, why do I say that? Because in the Gospel of Matthew, five times, somebody calls Jesus teacher, okay? You know that in every one of those instances, they end up not following Jesus, and I think in two or three of them, they actually are trying to trap him. You've read some of those stories. Teacher, tell us. And they give him like two little things, right? So there's a little tip going on there that maybe this guy is not all in as he wants us to think he is. Hmm. Now, some surmise that his ego was very much bubbling to the surface with this seemingly holy statement, I will follow you wherever you go. That maybe Mr. Bighead was like, well, I see the kind of people that follow Jesus. Fishermen, whew, they smell pretty bad. And tax collectors, well, they're just trying to use people. And, and soldiers, because we've seen that already. Pastor Cleet preached on that. Soldiers, yeah, I mean, they're, they're just ruthless, barbaric people. Um, and lepers, whoo, so unsightly. And middle-aged women even follow him. Jesus, I see what kind of motley crew you got following you. I, I, but I will come and join this movement, and I will take your pat platform to the next level. Other people have sensed that, that that might be the tenor of his heart, and it very well might be. Now, Jesus, which, by the way, this is the point I just made. That means that we, we, I think we need to be very careful about jumping on, we love to do this in American Christianity, jumping on celebrity confessions of faith, like, you know, like, like that's a bigger profession of faith than, than anybody else. No. And I would add, sometimes people have said, I've had family members say who are not believers, you know what kind of people follow Jesus. We should say, yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's right. You've chosen the base things of the world, right, to confound the, the wise. Let's embrace that. Now, Jesus, who knows every person's heart, knows at the heart of this declaration, which is why I think this sense of understanding what he's saying is right, knows that at the heart of this man's declaration is not self-denial, but actually self-love. Self-love, that's why he says in verse 20, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Now, what's he doing there? Well, let, let me say as an aside, to, almost to another aside, sometimes people try to take scriptures out of context, right? You always got to be careful for that. One of the things that people like to say is that this is kind of, this kind of came up in the 40s and 50s, has come up a little bit more again, that the Bible says you should never, you should own personal property. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? You know, like, I mean, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, right? Well, let, 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 first of all, the, what commandment presumes that people are going to own things? Which commandment? It's not steal. How can you steal something? that? Yeah, so there is personal ownership. There's nothing wrong with it. The Bible talks about it. And here, it's not saying Jesus never stayed in a house or had a house. Okay? For one, he stays with some of the disciples who have houses, Right? John 1 indicates that as he began his ministry, he probably had his own house. We know for a fact his parents had a house that he was raised in, and we know that the disciples had houses in the, in the book of Acts. People opened up their houses, right, to gospel workers. So that's not what it's saying. Well, then what is he saying when he says, the foxes, you know, have holes, and the birds there have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? What's he, what's he getting at? And I think it's, don't overthink it. I think what he is saying is this. He's highlighting the fact that following Jesus can be costly, right? There can be sacrifice, and there actually may be times because of persecution, you have a home you need to flee from. He had to, actually his parents did too. And maybe, just maybe, he's putting his finger on this man's love of security and love of comfort. At a minimum, I think it's fair to say he is saying, hey, following me is going to be no cakewalk. Got to be willing to say that. I have known Christians, I've known Christians over the years who seem to have the strongest professions of faith, the most biblically robust in their articulation who when things got tough and life didn't turn out the way they wanted it to, turned around and stopped following Jesus. Because following Jesus at times is going to be no cakewalk. Let me close out his check down of guy number one with noting what he calls Jesus, or what Jesus calls himself rather. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man. Did you catch that? The Son of Man. Let's not read past that. Who is the guy he's talking to? What do scribes know? The Bible. This is a reference, actually, to his deity. We say Son of Man, humanity. No, if you know the Bible, actually, is a reference to his deity. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel has those visions. He says, I saw the night visions. Behold, listen, one like the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. That's the Father. And there was given to him dominion and glory and power and a kingdom that all nations and tribes and languages and people should serve him. This is what it says. For his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall never pass away and that which shall not be destroyed. He's saying, scribe, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who's talking to you? The son of man who is the son of the ancient of days. Now, that's, that's, that's guy number one. 
The second guy he checks down, verse 22, is another one of the disciples who said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. If we call the first guy Mr. Big Head, I'm going to say, let's call this guy Mr. Family First. Or let's call him Mr. I'm going to get mine. I'll explain that in just a moment. But maybe you're tripped up by the fact that he is called what here? What is he called, this man? A disciple. So he's a disciple. Well, what you need to understand that in Scripture, there is sometimes the word disciple used quite generically, okay? As someone who for a moment is, is learning about Jesus or for a moment is following Jesus. But there were many people who were called disciples of Jesus. But when the goodies stopped coming and the going got tough, they did him out. They were out. So just note that it doesn't mean that he was actually a, a, a true believer. It seems at this point he's not. Now, he says, first let me go bury my father. And you look at that and say, well, that's a pretty reasonable request, right? Well, he, his dad's not literally dead. I'll explain. Well, it, I, I think we could surmise, first of all, that if his father was dead, he's not going to be following Jesus right then and there, right? Especially in the era, age, where there's no refrigeration, embalming wasn't that advanced. You do have to get that body in the ground pretty quick. But second of all, and more clearly, what's Jesus' response when he says, let me go bury my father first? What does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their dead. The last time I checked, the dead can't do much, Right? Unless they're the walking dead, and then they can eat bodies, but they can't bury bodies, right? So what he is saying is, let the spiritually dead, right, bury the physically dead. I came across an illustration to make this idiom clear for us. There was a missionary not that many years ago in Turkey who was discipling a young wealthy man in Turkey. The missionary was being called to, uh, down to Europe for a season, and he invited this young wealthy man figuring, I'm just going to have more time to pour into him and disciple him. So he shared, hey, I'm going to Europe for a couple of months. I would love to have you accompany me, and we can continue this discipleship relationship. And the guy says, oh, I'd love to, but first got to bury my father. And he said, why haven't you told me? This is terrible news. Your father's dead. He says, oh, no, 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 no. What, what, what I really mean to say is I need to stick around. I need to manage the family estate, manage my father's affairs. And when he passes away and I get mine, then I can... I'll have freedom to do the kind of thing you're asking. So be clear, Jesus is not saying, hey, if you really want to be faithful to me, skip your parents' funeral. Some cults ironically do that. Nor is he saying, thumb your nose at the fifth commandment, which is, kids, yeah, he's not saying you should dishonor your mother and father. What Jesus is clearly doing is he's pressing on two things with this guy. He's pressing on his family olatry that is basically putting family before God, and it is, I believe, an epidemic. And he's putting his finger on money olatry, putting money before God. Now, here's the deal true disciples follow, and guess what? Fake ones don't. Even if they make some glorious, flowery confession of faith. 
Of course, we can falter as true believers, right? And in fact, yes, there are times when we don't even practically and functionally actively follow. But in the end, a true believer, a true follower, will truly follow. We believe in something that is called the perseverance of the saints. So let me close out this first point with this question. Does your profession of faith have shoe leather? Do you walk it out? Do you actually follow Jesus? Do you live and interact in all, the, all your spheres of life in such a way that people would never be like, you're a Christian? Whew, sure had me fooled. Never would have figured that one out. Do you have a real relationship with him when you, where you actually pray to him, you relate to him, the living incarnate Savior, as Bonhoeffer puts it? Do you repent? Do you serve him? Do you serve others? Do you share him? Do you prioritize gathering with the blood-bought family with, with which you confess to be part of, of which you confess to be part of? This is just Christianity 101 stuff, right? Are you actually following Jesus? And, and if not, what's holding you back? What held these men back? What was holding these men back? Maybe comfort, security, family, a good thing, but not a God, a terrible God, or money? What, what is it for you, perhaps? People's opinions? The love of the world? Unanswered questions? Unresolved disappointments? It could be a whole host of things. And I would just say to you, but are you still willing with all of that to get in the boat with him? Well, why should I? Because he's the son of man. And he has an everlasting kingdom. His dominion shall not pass away. And you know, this is really cool. The disciples below, next verse, we'll go in just a minute. They had a lot of issues. You know that. Let's read the gospels. It's a little bit laughable. Like they're having like a, like, you know, middle school kids. Let me ride shotgun when you come into your kingdom. Can I be on your right left hand? Like they do that kind of stuff. We kind of do that same kind of stuff too. But you know what? With all their issues, they get in the boat. They follow him. Verse 23. Now that brings us then to the second point, which I don't believe will be as long as the first one. It's this. We saw true believers not only talk the talk, they walk the walk. Second of all, true believers will face difficulties for following Jesus. Let me make it really clear. True believers are going to face difficulties precisely because you, by God's grace, chose to follow Jesus. Difficulties you would not otherwise encounter were you not following Jesus. I'm not saying people in the world don't suffer difficulties. We do. We live in a fallen world. But there's some that believers experience because they follow Jesus. It's very plain in this text. They're on the Sea of Galilee. It's about 600 feet below sea level, 13 miles by 8 miles. And to the north of the Sea of Galilee rises a mountain range peaking out at 9,200 feet above sea level. And even to this day, seasonally, it funnels winds down into a rather small body of water and gives it storms disproportionate to its size. But the storm here seems to be more than disproportionate, a, a one-of-a-kind storm. Verse 24, and behold, after the disciples followed him into the boat, verse 24, there arose a great storm on the sea. This is, an, this is 
not just a natural kind of storm, it seems. I don't have time to uh, fill that out, but I will give you the words. Magos seismos. Magos sounds like mega, like mega gulp, big drink, 7-Eleven, and seismos from which we get the word seismic, or like, you know, seismic stuff, earthquake stuff. This is a really big storm, so much so, uh, so much so that the boat is being swamped with water. You see that? Waves are gushing over the deck into the boat. It is, per, per, it is uh, perilous. It is dangerous, the situation that they're in. And soon they are going to learn afresh that he indeed is the Son of Man. But now, the point I'm just simply trying to make is the one I just made, and I want to reiterate it. They are experiencing this storm precisely why? Why? Because they followed Jesus. Was Jesus surprised by the boat? Was he leading them even in and through that storm? They're suffering there because they're following Jesus. Now, as I just said, all people will face difficulties in a fallen world, right? People have marital beefs, uh, there's sickness, there's trauma, there's loss of job, there's heartbreak and all that. Everybody's gonna face that. But Christians, I think, can experience those things at times more acutely and a whole host of other things, which I don't have the time to delineate. But, but, but for instance, as a Christian, you're gonna suffer what people say about you and what people do to you if you choose to stick with the stuff and stay with the word. Then we talk about opening message of the conference last week. I hope you can listen to the next five messages to be sure. But I said, you're gonna be slandered at times. You're gonna be misquoted at times. You're gonna be caricaturized at times. And if anything, they agree with you, but they don't like the way you said it at times. <laughs> All of that and more for following Christ. There's gonna be the fact that you, as a Christian, you're just not in step with the world, right? You're an alien, you're a pilgrim, it says a sojourner, passing through. Or how about this? We'll get into this next week, probably more than I at first figured. I started preparing for that message, the de demoniac of gathering crazy application for today. But you become a high-value target for the enemy if you bear the name of Christ. You realize that. Spiritual warfare is real. So as I just alluded to, the kind of garden variety suffering that the world has, I believe when we experience those same things, the enemy tries to put the pedal to the metal and make it even more egregious. The enemy wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy your joy. He wants to destroy your peace. He wants to destroy your faith in God. Hard times happen precisely because you follow Jesus. And what makes it even worse sometimes is it, it sometimes seems like Jesus doesn't even care. I mean, he's asleep in this boat, right? Mark records that the disciples said, Master, don't you even care? <laughs> that were perishing, they were doubting his benevolence, they were doubting his goodness. Finally here, it appears, they wake him up. They went and woke him, verse 25, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
In verse 26, Jesus' response is going to be a twofold indictment against us as well as them. Why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Now, he's the son of man, right? Think about it. The creator is in the canoe with them. The savior is in the ship with them. And yet, they are fraught with fear. And they have such small, weak faith. We can do a little sanctified guessing of the psychology of what was going on with them. Maybe they thought, well, we're the fishermen. We know what it's like to be in a storm. Maybe they tried to remedy the situation themselves. Who knows? Maybe they thought, he's good at what he does, but he's just a carpenter after all. Not a man of the seas. And you say, if that's the case, how on earth could they think that? Because hadn't they seen and experienced his, his breakthroughs already, right? They, he's still early in his ministry, but they've seen enough to know he is somebody special. But you know what? I don't think we're so different than they are. Have you ever experienced God's grace? and some kind of deliverance, and some kind of breakthrough, and some kind of provision. And all of us here, collectively, we stand on the achieved side of the greatest deliverance ever, right? His death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, and yet we, like them, are often filled with so much fear and have such little faith. Maybe we're not so different after all. Now, I don't think most of us here would doubt the greatness of Christ, his sovereignty. We are good, reformed Christians. We know that he is larger than in charge. But I would surmise to say that we might wrestle with trusting not his greatness, but his goodness. Is he really for me? Is he really good? Well, how could he let this happen? How could he bring this storm into my life? And when we pray and he doesn't move the way we think we, he should move, then we can doubt his benevolence and goodness all the more. We're not so different, are we? But let's not be too hard on them. And let's not be too hard on us. You see, yes, if they'd had strong faith, they would not have panicked at all. But if they had no faith, they wouldn't have been in that storm. They wouldn't have been in the boat. And they wouldn't even in that boat, in that storm, called upon him, and even if it was a last resort, Master, wake up! We're perishing. What storms do you need to turn over to God in faith? What struggles do you need to say, here, Lord, there's water coming in my boat, and I'm drowning. Cramner faltered, right? But in the end, what did he do? He followed. And maybe you're in a season of faltering. <laughs> Not even really following. And it's time to pick back up and get in the boat, storms and all.
I read something. I'm closing out the second point. I promise the first point, the third point is going to be like three minutes, okay? You can hold me to that. Close to it. But I've just been feasting on this all week. It's been, been challenging to me, really. Daniel Dorani, in his commentary, said something. I've been chewing on it all week. He says, faith is a form of bravery. And I thought to myself, I want to be a brave man, not in like in a humanistic, worldly kind of way, but I want to be a brave man. I want, to, I want to pastor a church of brave men and women. Brave young men and brave young women. Faith is a form of bravery. And what he teases us out, what he says is this. Many times we just have a passive acceptance. That's our idea of faith. A passive acceptance. A dead resignation that says, I'm just believing. Which leaves us dead and dormant in the water. And in that season, functionally and practically, dead and dormant in our faith. And in dead and dormant seasons, you can't produce fruit because dead things don't bear fruit. He said, in contrast to that, the Bible calls us to a courageous confidence that says, even though I don't know what's going on, in the midst of these difficulties where I can't see left from right and up from down, I am going to believe God. And I'm going to continue to follow in all those ways I described. And one that does so again and again and again with every wave that crashes over the deck of your life. You ever read Hebrews chapter 11? It's called the hall of what? Now, if you know the story of some of those people in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, you would say, that's like putting Millie Vanilli in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is crazy. They don't seem too heroic to me, right? Samson, Abraham, people like that. How in the world did they make it into the Hebrews Hall of Faith? And the answer is, well, of all their faltering and foibles, they believed. They believed him. They put shoe leather to their faith. That is, they followed him even when they could not make sense of things. They followed him. You say, well, there's times in, in a storm I've chosen to trust in God. I've chosen to believe in his promises. But still nothing happened. Yes, that's the point of Hebrews Hall of Faith. That's it, that's it. Even when they didn't see it, They believed when they were in a pickle and could not see a way out of the big picture. Listen to the way this chapter starts off. Or not starts off, I will hit that in just a second. But verse 13, it says in the midst of this Hebrews Hall of Faith, one of the plaques, one of the bronze plaques says this. These all died, now listen, in faith, but not yet having received the promises. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, like I can't, I'm not, I'm not experiencing it, but God's good on his word, and somewhere down the quarter of time, certainly in eternity, they will all come to fruition, and he will make all wrong things right. And have acknowledged that, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's a great way to begin. I'm a stranger, and I'm an exile on earth. Pastor Cleet got it right when so much of our problem is we lose fact of whose we are, that our identity is in Christ as opposed to 
of the world. Now listen to verse one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And for it, here's the point I'm trying to make, people of old received their commendation. That's why they're in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Faith is a form of bravery, don't you think? Don't you think? It's not about, you know, how bold you are, how smart you are, big you are. It's, I'm going to choose to believe God, even when I'm in a pickle and I can't see the way out. Now, in this boat, Jesus is not just the rescuer. Got to hit this real quick. He's an example of trusting Jesus in the storm himself. The calm that washed over the disciples, undoubtedly, when calm came to to that tumultuous sea, is a calm that Jesus had himself the whole time, isn't it? I mean, he's sleeping in the midst of a storm. He trusted in the Father in the midst of the storm and had calm because of it. And as we trust in him, we can have calm in the midst of our storms. We will all falter at times. But the question is, will we pick back up and follow? Fake followers are filtered out by difficulties, but true followers are filled out. We get a little spiritual muscle on our frame as we follow him. Now, my closing in three-minute last point. This is very obvious by now. True followers grow as they keep on following in the midst of storms. They grow. The creator stands. We know, you know, how, this, we know how this plays out. He stands. Jesus Christ, the Savior in the ship, the creator in the canoe, stands. And, and another gospel says, tells us, he said, it's one word in the Greek, be muzzled. Boom. That tumultuous sea becomes a serene lake of grass. Great storm, it says, snap, great calm. And what do they say at the end of that after witnessing Jesus flex a little bit of his creative power over nature? What kind of man is this that he makes even the winds and seas to obey him? You see, we, like them, as we go through storms, We learn, and keep following through them, by the way. We don't bail out. We keep following. We learn more of our God, and we grow because of that storm. And I don't have time to give testimonies, though. There are many great illustrations of people who really went through the grinder, really went through a difficult time, in all kinds of areas, and as they pressed on, they can look back and said, I grew because of that, right? I saw God move more because of that. The beauty isn't just getting through the storm. The beauty is getting to know God better because of that storm. So may we all have Matthew 8, 27 moments. What manner of man is this that he makes even the winds and the sea to obey him? Brian, you come and close us with a song, and I ask you a few questions as he does so. Number one, what is holding you back right now what's holding you back number two 
What storm do you need to press on through? What storm do you need to press on through? And number three, maybe you just need to take the first step of getting into the boat, of trusting in Jesus. You know, Jesus went through a much bigger storm than this. 2,000 years ago on the cross, he bore the storm, the holy storm of God's righteous judgment against our sin on the cross. And he stilled that storm when he rose from the dead. And I love this little spirit-given brushstroke. We saw in the first event that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But the Scripture actually does tell us he lay his head specifically in one place. And it's in, I think it's the Gospel of John where it says, Jesus bowed his head or lay his head down, gave up his spirit after he said, it is finished. And he did that so that you could have a place to everlastingly lay your body and soul and be with him forever. True followers may falter, but in the end, they'll do what? They'll follow. Thanks be to God.